Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust, a podcast for digital transformation leaders where we discuss the latest cyber attack issues, enterprise security strategies, and current security events so that you can successfully accelerate network and security transformation. And now here's what's on our mind this week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. I'm Lisa Lorenzen here with my colleague, Pam Kubiatowski. We're both field CTOs with Zscaler. And we have a third colleague with us today. Our guest is Martin Dichburn, and he's a director of Transformation Strategy. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's, it's great to be able to work with you again. I think the last time we spoke was at Zenith Live. We had the pleasure of presenting together. And of course, since then, I've joined the Zscaler family, you know, helping other customers build on their zero trust journey, helping them translate their business goals into these achievable outcomes you know, by thinking differently about their architecture, and of course, as you mentioned in my previous life, I was head of cloud and infrastructure for a company called Informa. Uh, Informa is best well known for being the world's largest exhibitions company. And during my time there, I really owned many of the key IT strategies, such as cloud adoption, throughout cloud first initiatives, digital workplace strategy, which looked deeply at the, the mobility and security of our users. And I also owned our IT mergers and acquisitions processes. And it's really here that I stumbled onto this topic of zero trust because I was looking for a, a way of smashing two companies together in a way that was far more elegant than just blindly connecting two networks together. And I'm really glad that I did because out of this new capability of joining these new companies came a completely new direction in our networking strategy. Oh, that's excellent. And I remember that Zenith Live presentation. You did a great job of outlining how Informa leveraged the principles of Zero Trust to not only improve your security, but also to streamline user access. And I would say, there's a lot of people who talk about getting to zero trust. I'm really interested in the path you took there. And I want to start with, what did zero trust mean to you in that previous role? Well, Lisa, the, the truth is we didn't know that we were looking for zero trust when we started. You know, in fact, all we knew was that we were searching for answers to very specific business questions. And these are all about finding an answer to speeding up mergers and acquisitions, finding a better way to connect and secure the vast quantities of cloud accounts that we had. I think from memory, I had over 150 cloud accounts, and that was a growing number of over 600 VPCs and VNets. And of course, you know, making sure that whilst we're making all these transformational changes, that we're really giving the best experience possible to our users. And of course, importantly, protecting the company from anybody wishing to do it harm. People just describe this journey towards zero trust as a journey, and I completely agree that it is. But it's really this powerful vehicle for allowing ourselves to think differently. And for me, it was a real privilege to be able to work with some really amazingly talented people. Changing the way we worked, I think, you know, having purpose is such a critical component to any type of career. And it was really fantastic to you know, help our network teams find new purpose by leveraging zero trust, helping them to solve these problems that we've been really grappling with for you know, many years. And of course, lastly, for me, your zero trust, it just isn't this solution that you just buy. It's this new way of thinking and providing services that is far more than a technology investment. Makes sense. So it sounds like you were tackling some complicated problems. What would you say you set out to solve? And do you feel like you were able to achieve that solution? That's a great question. I think, as I mentioned, you know, our goal was to really change the way we performed IT integration for mergers and acquisitions. You know, our primary aim was to see if we could integrate a company called UBM into Informa without joining these networks. And the reason we were trying to do this is because they had a network almost identical to ours. We were faced with either re-IPing a lot of their environment installing lots of firewalls, and it just didn't really sit well with our cloud ambition. We were looking for this way to give value on day zero rather than a month three and four, you know, after making all of these changes. And what we found is, you know, through solving this problem, we got a whole new way to provide connectivity between our users and our applications. And this meant that we could position the internet as the new corporate network. And I think 
by thinking this way, our users became a lot more mobile and had a far better experience. It allowed us to reduce our network investment in offices. This yielded about 80% reduction in spend on private network connectivity. But it also meant that we could offer a far more consistent security experience anywhere in the world. And this is really because we had one set of business policies that focused on this concept of an individual and not really the network segment they were addressed in. Um, yes. You know, we really, really embraced this cafe-style working model. And as you might imagine, this really served us well when COVID hit, when others were increasing their network spend on firewalls and more VPN licenses and more connectivity. Informer was busy spending less. We were reducing our network. We were removing our VPNs and funneling you know, all of this money that we were saving into these projects that would move the business forward to the benefit of our customers. Given your, your role previously, when you were in this journey, you were the head of cloud infrastructure and DevOps. Do you think being in that kind of role, do you think that altered actually your perspective or your drive to achieve zero trust? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Pam. The short answer for me is, is yes, it did. You know, several years earlier, I had embarked Informer on this cloud-first journey. It was really clear to me then that I had to change this model of how we delivered our services. And this was really to keep pace with this huge velocity change that comes from when you're adopting cloud-based services. And back then, it was all about infrastructure as code and automating as much as possible. So to deal with this speed change, I created Informer's first DevOps teams and our agile practices. And it's really remarkable to see how these processes, all these these manual processes for building out servers and storage and how they could be compressed into just a few hours. But the problem was we still had one drag. You know, we found it still really difficult to overcome how to automate and deployment of our connectivity. IP addressing, routing, and building firewalls, you know, aren't really things that were easy to automate. And this is really because their origin is this deep-rooted 30-year set-and-forget mindset. So, of course, roll forward a few years in a power zero trust journey. I started to get this sense of deja vu because... The architectural leaps that Zero Trust introduced meant that we finally had this way to transform connectivity in the same way that we transformed our data centers to cloud you know, just a few years before. And it's really then that we gave birth to this upgrade to this DevOps model that we were creating. We started to introduce networking into the mix. You know, and I guess we started to end up with this DevNet SecOps. And this transition really signaled that as a group, we were starting to get ready for a different way of working than we ever had before. So I think to answer your question, my perspective really changed a lot on how to position my network teams with regards to this cloud lifecycle and how valuable those skills would end up becoming in shifting up yet another gear in our speed to deliver. Martin, I think you kind of touched on a point that I think is really important. From an operational perspective, your operational procedures change, and it is different for your technical teams. But what I had experienced in the past was you find so many benefits by being able to change the way you used to do it to the new from hardware, touching that hardware, having to, like how you explained, going through, going ahead and really evolving the architecture from that old world to the new and really more of a cloud solution. One of the things that you had also touched on earlier was about your mergers and acquisitions. Can you talk a little bit more about how did Zero Trust play into that, into your M&A initiatives and what, what changed for you? So for us, the, the idea of joining two separate networks together and, and all of the things that came with it, the idea of different security postures, the complexity of managing firewall policy, such, it, it really felt against this grain. And of course, for us, the idea of joining two organizations together is really about speed. The board really wants to show value to the markets on day zero. You know, they're not prepared to really wait six to 12 months to sort of get value. And that's really what we were aiming to do. And we couldn't really achieve that in any other way. We'd, we'd explored VDI, we'd explored bringing services to the edge. 
Um, and they really just didn't serve us well because we were either compromising on performance, the user experience, or we were compromising on security. So the way that we approached M&A and adopting Zscaler and, and ZPA as part of that process really helped us move the time to value from month three and four on, onto day zero. We were now getting users connected to applications far quicker than we ever had before. And of course, we didn't have to wait for this costly and expensive CapEx investment for firewalls and all the configuration tasks that go in to make that happen. You know, one of the things too, Martin, just to add to that, in having lived this in a previous life, I found that the other benefit was you reduce the noise in the channel related to the end user. Did you see that also? Because I saw that when we actually applied the Zscaler technology in an acquisition perspective, and for that matter, divesture, a user doesn't have to think about where the application resides. They don't have to think, how, what do I use in order to get to that application? It makes it so simple. Did you find something similar? We absolutely did. And in fact, it was the first time I'd ever had users as part of a proof of concept. We, we were very early days back then in our first acquisition, actually complained when that proof of concept ended. You know, our users were telling us that their experience to connecting to applications was 40% faster than they ever had before. They loved the idea of this always-on solution. They didn't have to worry about changing from one VPN solution to another with a different set of credentials. It just worked. And it worked anywhere. It worked on home. When you're at home, it worked in coffee shops and it worked when you're working in the office where you're originally working from, where you were based, or even in the company's office where the merger was, was taking place. It sounds like that approach worked really well for M&A and also helped you achieve some of the other business goals that you mentioned. One thing that really stood out for me from your Zero Trust talk at Zenith Live was that you actually tackled Zero Trust directly, not starting with a wildcard. And I'm sure that wasn't all smooth sailing. What were the complications of segmentation? What were the complications in your environment that challenged you doing that? I think we had a lot of legacy. You know, over the years, we'd lost a lot of this institutional knowledge. And, you know, we needed to really understand how these applications and landscapes hung together. So in many cases, we had to become detectives. We had to relearn a lot of this institutional knowledge that had been lost. And, you know, sometimes there really wasn't anyone to go to creating these fine-grained policies was a, was a real challenge because we had to learn how these applications worked and which users were, were trying to access them and why they were trying to access them. But I think one of the other complications that we weren't really expecting is that Informa operates in this federated operating model. And it was, you know, it's really this group of companies of lots of entities. And they operated you know, a whole host of these sensitive market segments, including finance and healthcare. And it meant that we had to satisfy a lot of this regulatory criteria. You know, we ended up spending a lot of time with the independent security and application groups to help walk them through the architecture and by showing them all these audit controls and how they would work. It was complicated to get these policies in, but it was hugely valuable because we were saving time and investment on the other side. We were increasing our security posture by making all of these micro-segment blocks. So of course, our users loved the experience. Our security teams loved the increase in security posture. And of course, it meant that we didn't have all these firewalls dotted around. We could save hundreds of hours of complexity through dropping all of these physical devices that weren't required anymore. So Martin, could you kind of just touch on how did you actually overcome some of the obstacles you found? And also any words of advice for operationalizing ultimately what you got to? For us, it was really about being inclusive, bringing the people on the journey with you. Even if it meant adjusting the speed, giving people time to learn, these changes are hard and not everyone's going to get them straight away. You know, you really need to remember that this sort of change in, in many cases is going to challenge people's muscle memory. For some, it's going to feel really unsettling having to relearn parts of their jobs that they might have taken for granted. 
I think secondly, spending time with your service desk. These teams, you know, they're on the coal face of interacting with users every day. And if you fail to arm them with these necessary tools and information, the users are going to lose confidence. And I think lastly, you know, spending time building a community of champions and letting them form this group who are able to speak for different parts of the business and take back these key learnings and decisions. You know, failing to properly engage, I think, you know, with the different parts of your organizations and giving them this voice you know, helps avoid all this change resistance. You're not going to get bogged down in people trying to protect their old roles and their old lives. And instead, you get this army of advocates for change, not a group of resistance fighters. For you, it doesn't sound like, and for many that we talk to, organizations have very smart people. They can figure out the technology. It really sounds like, as well, you have found that it's focusing in on people changing their thought process. If you really looked at the underlying obstacle you had, was that really much more of what it was? I definitely think convincing people to bringing them on this journey with you was, was hugely important. I think it's important for people to understand that we didn't lose anybody along the way of this process and we didn't have to bring in these special set of skills. We brought these, these individuals on, on this journey with us. In fact, they're the same network team that we started with as at the end, except it's a much more powerful network team. They're thinking more about layer seven, the application layer and the identity layers than they ever have been before. They're focusing more on how to get users securely to their applications and less about whether their firewall is patched or what the latest IP block problem is or vulnerability in the, in the malware space. You mentioned the help desk, and I think that's where a lot of organizations struggle also because this change of the technology, all this kind of stuff. I actually would call the help desk a couple times a week and I'd call in a help desk ticket. I didn't have a problem, but I wanted to see what they answered. You get different agents, you get them at the moment. And you see whether or not, did they get the difference, right? Did they start to understand the differences and, and you can focus in on there. I think it's really important how you tapped into your help desk also. Yeah, layer eight is always the hardest layer and the help desk is that frontline interface. So getting them on side and helping them understand how they can help the users and how that helps make their lives easier, it's always critical. I'm wondering if you had it to do all over again, what would you do differently? What would you keep the same? Where do you feel like you really succeeded and where would you maybe take some lessons you learned and apply them earlier? Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's a really tough question. I think for me, I would have approached business engagement very differently. We spent a lot of time on communicating the, this mechanics of the migration. And what we really should have done is spend a lot more time on this general awareness campaign. I think having the company at large see that this is a really important initiative with really senior executive champion buy-in probably would have helped a great deal with getting stubborn resistors on board. And I think one thing we would definitely keep the same is the decision we made with regard to how we would approach zero trust behavior when we're operating inside the corporate building. It was really tempting by some to bypass private access and rely on this traditional networking, routing and switching to get the users where they needed to go. But I think ultimately we decided in order to get true parity for behavior and threat retention, uh, prevention rather, we decided not to implement trusted location policies. And this decision really, really helped us springboards towards this idea of positioning the internet as a new corporate network. And I think making this decision to forget about this concept of trusted networks is really paying off for us in the long term, most notably because, you know, as I mentioned, when COVID hit, we could be confident that things were going to work just the same as they were inside the office and if, importantly outside the office when the users are on the road. And of course, we want them to be well protected and their data well protected. I don't think anyone expected when we had this conversation in 2019 that we would be put to the test in quite the way that we have been. And I'm so glad that the foundation you built helped to ease that transition as the world blew up on us. 
So Martin, yeah. tell us, so many today are just starting out on their journey. They all are talking about trying to get to zero trust. They're trying to frame it up in their brain. What would you share with them for somebody who was just starting out on their journey? Yeah, I think for me, it's about two things, permission and confidence, giving yourself this permission to take time to learn and absorb all these new ways of working. I think it's really easy to get bogged down in, in thinking that we're supposed to know all of these answers straight away. But we have to remember that zero trust is really challenging. The, you know, these 30 years of established architecture practices, you know, we need to give ourselves the permission to take the journey at a pace that works for us and at a pace that works for our organization. And of course, confidence, the you know, confidence to know that all this investment in time and energy is going to be worthwhile. It's important to know, I think, as IT leaders, that we're not alone. There are others who have tread this journey ahead of us or, or on this journey with us. And of course, it's about having this confidence that there's power in numbers, you know, being confident you're on the right path. And if, even if the road looks a little bit differently than you expected before you began, taking the journey at a pace and in increments that really work for you. That's great advice. It really is. And with that, I'd like to thank you so much for spending this time with Lisa and I and our listeners. I hope all of you have found this as interesting as I have to hear Martin and Informa's journey to zero trust. And we look forward to hosting you guys again and look forward to our next conversation. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find Lisa Lorenzen and Pam Kubiatowski on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com or on LinkedIn. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult with your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.